little bit of history to begin with. Throughout the Roman world, when the emperor needed to make an announcement, it was done in a deliberate way. After all, Caesar could not use the BBC. He hadn't paid his license. Or he couldn't speak on Google. So they used, of course, a messenger. In every place. And like our old medieval town criers, the messenger would shout loud. But he would not say, oh yay, oh yay, oh yay. He was a sophisticated Roman, you know. No, no. Caesar commanded that all imperial announcements were formal proclamations. And so, and you may have heard this before, every proclamation by Caesar's command began with good news gospel, good news gospel, good news gospel. And then the news would follow. So it might be like this. Good news gospel, good news gospel, good news gospel. Today is Caesar's birthday. Worship him. And then a few months later there might be another message. Good news gospel, good news gospel, good news gospel. Today Caesar's army has won. A great victory. Worship Caesar. And then, six months later, there may be another message. Good news, gospel. Good news, gospel. Good news, gospel. Today, Caesar will increase income tax. Worship Caesar. The accountants were very happy. Not only was this the emperor's way of communication, (coughs) more importantly, it was Caesar's way of stamping his authority over the empire. He was asserting his rule. He was showing off his power. So, as far as he was concerned, his news was... Good news, gospel. Because he ruled. Good news, gospel. Caesar rules. Trumpets blaring out and the army behind him. And this is partly what Paul meant when he once referred to the powers and principalities of this world. Now, if I can use a slight sense of humour here, very slight. The apostles of Jesus returned the compliment. They effectively said, good news gospel. Jesus has died and has risen and is coming again. Jesus rules. The politics of that couldn't be avoided. Implying that Caesar's gospel was fake news. 
Caesar is not God. Do not worship him. Good news gospel. Jesus is God's son who has died for you. Worship him. Amen. Of course the Jews had been waiting. And it was a long wait. Hundreds of years. And now comes John the Baptist. It's as if he's saying to them. I know you've been waiting hundreds and hundreds of years. Well I want to tell you. It's coming. The day of the Lord. It's coming. So you've got to wake up. You've got to be ready. And this wake up call. Surprised the Jews. The Jews as I say. They had been waiting. And looking for a sign. And for most of the Jews. That sign. Would be found in the context. Of the military. So they were very surprised when John the Baptist says, the Lord is coming, you repent. They wasn't expecting that message. And of course repentance means a change of mind. Change your minds, turn round. You've been naughty, think about it, give it up, change your mind, turn around. And if you can repent, if you will repent, come out into the river and be baptised and you'll be forgiven. And this will get you ready for the coming of the special one. And I'm standing here in the, in the river talking like this because I'm trying to get you ready for the special one who is coming. And... Um, So morally, you've got to clean up. Spiritually, you've got to get ready. Um, It used to be said, wherever the queen went, she could always smell fresh paint. Well, John is getting everybody to get ready. Spiritually, fresh paint. Morally, get ready, be prepared. And John implies that the coming of the special one will even put him in the shade. And John knew that the coming one would do a dramatic replay of the Passover. And the Passover, as you'll remember, was for the Jews the never-to-be-forgotten divine deliverance from Egypt and they never forgot that they were always looking back to it remembering it thankfully and using it as a model for the future it's going to happen again John knew that the one who was coming would do a dramatic replay of the Passover exodus out of slavery Poor slaves, oppressed, always hungry, always thirsty, slaves, overworked, always tired. God liberated them to freedom under Moses. 
through the Red Sea, across the wilderness, then into the promised land. Now in the Gospels and the letters of Paul and Peter, there was a change. They saw that to leave behind Egypt comes to be seen as leaving behind sin. Leaving behind rebelling against God. This is the new exodus. And so John points his hearers and he sort of paints everybody in the crowd. He paints them as actors in the new Passover. This is not something just going to happen. You're all called to be in it. You're part of it. You're part of this new Passover in forgiveness and repentance. You'll find freedom from guilt <coughs> and liberation from the habit of sin. In the original story of the Exodus, God came to live amongst the Jews. With the coming of the special one, things would be similar but slightly different. God's spirit would now live with people, be a lot more intimate. In fact, God's spirit through Jesus would come to live inside people's hearts. God with us. And so John is saying, as the coming one is about to arrive, God is doing a new thing. New Passover, new exodus. Are you Hebrew people ready? Are you prepared? Think about repentance. Come for baptism and forgiveness. Get ready. Now as they would say on EastEnders, we've been hanging about. Hanging about. Don't like hanging about. Wait, <coughs> waiting. Waiting is not nice. Especially if you don't know you were going to have to wait. You wait for a bus and it's raining, it's cold, it's windy. And the bus is late. You wait extra 10 minutes. 15 minutes, you wait, you're cold. You wait an extra 20 minutes and then you realise the bus is cancelled. So you've got to wait an extra 45 minutes. This is no fun, this is frustration. It might make you angry. And you're cold and you're getting wet. Or well, you're coming down with a heavy cold. And you've just got to wait for the cold to pass. You take paracetamol, but it only deals with the symptoms. Still got the cold. <laughs> no fun. But even worse, there's a war where the tragedy lasts. And the people caught up in that war wait in misery. And we see it on the news every day, don't we? Waiting. It's a poignant theme. 
And the Jews were waiting for God to do something. And John points to the coming one. Go forward 50 years and St. Paul is in prison. What's he doing? He's waiting. That's what most people do in prison really, isn't it? Paul was waiting in prison in Rome. He, of course he was happy. (laughs) He was waiting for the coming of the Lord in glory. He was waiting in prison. But he wasn't idle. He was witnessing to all the guards. Talking to them about Jesus and his resurrection. And he was writing his wonderful letters to the church. (laughs) So waiting didn't make him idle. It shouldn't make me idle. (laughs) We're looking for God's calling, for God's purpose. While we wait. Even if waiting is difficult. The early Christians, at least those who knew Peter, they grumbled to Peter. Why? Why? Why is the Lord's coming delayed? But fed up with waiting, hanging about. But why? We too might say, why is peace delayed in the Middle East or in Ukraine and in so many other places? Why in so many places is there continued suffering and pain and within families and homes and workplaces? Why? Well, of course... I don't have an answer. But maybe one or two hints that sort of overlap. I read a while back that Christian insight tries to see through fog in a craggy landscape. It's a good way to begin a book. <laughs> And Paul said, now we see through a glass darkly. One thing I'd say is that Christian insight requires that we take a step of faith within reason. (coughs) Christian insight requires that we take a step of faith within reason. Somebody here this morning, maybe me, need to take a step of faith. We can't see the end. We need to take a step of faith with a plan or something to begin to do or something to stop doing. And it's a step of faith. We don't have a guarantee. But that's a big part of the Christian life even while we are waiting and then of course in our second reading from Peter's second letter 
we're given another perspective. I think it's a perspective that is to reflect on, because it comes from a poem. It's a quotation by Peter from Psalm 90. And in the, the third chapter, Peter says, God is not slow. Well, I guess the people needed to be reminded of that. Like perhaps I do. God is not slow. And if you are having to wait, please don't assume it's because God is slow. And then, as you'll remember and know very well, verse 8, he writes, But do not ignore this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years is like one day. Psalm 90. With God, the unfolding of time seems very mysterious. Maybe because we're looking through fog in a craggy landscape. Somebody else once wrote that the meaning is in the waiting. The meaning is in the waiting. They never mention that on the dating sites or on the commercials. <laughs> Sometimes when you look back, the meaning was in the waiting. And then, of course, P Peter says sometimes what seems to be God's slowness is really God's wonderful forbearance. He's giving us his patience. So that we have space for a little bit of improvement. <laughs> He's giving us space for renewal or developing maturity or vocation at any age. Well, waiting an extra 40 minutes for a bus in the cold and the rain can feel like hours. But for those who suffer pain, time drags. And there are the long, dark nights. As you know, John the Baptist was beheaded by Herod. Jesus suffered death under the Roman governor. But here we find Jesus' solidarity with all who suffer. A solidarity which is an aid to our faith. When you're having a rough time, 
when you're in pain. Jesus comes to you to be with you from his cross. His death is about his intimate solidarity with all who suffer. And that's a reminder that Jesus' death is not just about dying for our sins. His death was a great picture of God's love and God's solidarity and fellowship with his suffering world. When Jesus was betrayed by Judas, then he was arrested. His hands were tied and he was taken away. He was made helpless. And he suffered a terrible miscarriage of justice with the false accusations and the bribed witnesses. And still with his hands tied, he was beaten by Jewish soldiers. And that meant he really was injured and seriously hurt and would have suffered a measure of shock. And later in the morning, as the sun was beginning to show up, he was flogged by Roman soldiers. Over 30 lashes. The flogging was a prolonged torture. And it was meant to be torture. 30 lashes flogged to within an inch of his death. The Romans intended it to be a form of torture and a form of humiliation to express Roman rule. Jesus submitted. When he got to Calvary, soldiers nailed him to the cross. Paradoxically, they only used three nails. One for each hand, and one, dreadfully, through both feet. When the cross was lifted, Jesus' whole body hung by those three nails. Hanging. He waited. He didn't hang for five minutes or ten minutes. He hung for three hours. And surely those miserable three hours must have felt like a thousand years. On the third day he was raised as a sample of new creation. But he suffered on the cross. And his suffering was his solidarity with all who suffer. His solidarity and fellowship from the cross 
aids our faith. That's why he died. To aid our faith with his solidarity from his cross. That's how he helps us to wait from the cross. Another question, and with this I will quickly close. Another question connected with waiting. When we ask, why do so many people appear not to want Jesus? Well, one answer is, of course, we don't know. And I'm no judge, at least I shouldn't be. But we do ask the question, why do so many people not want Jesus? Why? Do they live without God? Why? And it's not simply because they're sinners. Some of them (laughs) are lovely people. They're our family members. They're our friends. Why are we waiting for family members and good friends to seek, find and commit to Jesus. Why are we waiting? I'll read to you a little sentence here. It might be part of the reason, only part. He writes, given the confusion of the world and the limitations of human reason, And the corruption of many of the church's ministers. Those who reject the gospel in this life. Will nevertheless be presented with a much more compelling version of grace, truth, beauty and love. At the last as they go forward into the next. Enabling them to make a free act of faith. Let me just read that again. Given the confusion of the world and the limitations of human reason and the corruption of the church's ministers, those who reject the gospel in this life will nevertheless be presented with a much more compelling version of grace, truth, beauty and love at the last as they go forward into the next that will enable them to make a free act of faith. That's a perspective. And of course in Ephesians God speaks of God's plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in Christ. Maybe God is mercifully inclusive in his own way. And to God be the glory. Amen.